What I find is that in terms of activating people, though, in conversations, it's very hard to jump to transactions straight away. You can't just sort of hit people cold and just say, okay, we've got a difficult situation here. We've got a few options. What do you think we should do? And this goes for any sector, whether it's infrastructure or urban planning or health service planning, environmental issues. It's the same thing. If you don't have a relationship with people, you can't really work with them. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Lubertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking, inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. On today's episode of the Thriving in Complexity podcast, I'm joined by Max Hardy. Max is one of Australia's foremost experts in community engagement processes and a highly sought-after facilitator for complex issues and challenges, including those related to redevelopment of social housing projects. With a special interest in deliberative democracy, Max has designed and facilitated over 60 deliberative panels since 1998. Renowned internationally for his skillful design and facilitation of community engagement processes, Max has developed innovative models for collaboration and community engagement, for which he has won numerous national and international awards. Max Hardy specializes in collaborative governance, process and solution co-design, appreciative inquiry, strategic questioning, Collective Impact and Designing, Facilitating and Evaluating Deliberative Community Engagement Processes. He also co-facilitated Australia's First Citizens Parliament and facilitated a World Cafe session at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas in Sydney. As a master trainer for IAP2, Max co-designed and facilitated two training academies in 2006 and 2008 in Alberta, Canada, and Edinburgh in the UK, respectively. He has co-authored two books, presented papers at numerous international conferences, and is a regular guest lecturer at various universities. Max is also a mentor for IAP2's Advanced Mentoring Program, an Associate of Collaboration for Impact, and is a regular collaborator for the Tamarack Institute in Canada. As one of the founders of Authentic Co-Design, Max has also co-developed self-paced courses in co-design, which are delivered online throughout the world. I hope that you get an enormous amount out of my conversation with Max today. Max, so lovely to have you on the podcast today. I wondered if you'd be happy to share with our audience something about you that most people wouldn't know. Oh, sure. Well, Most people that I do work with probably don't know this, but of course, friends in my early days would know this. I was, uh, I spent quite a few years as a heavy metal rock drummer (laughs) from the age of 14. And so uh, I'm paying the price for it now with a bit of tinnitus, I think, but uh, that was, uh, that was good fun. And what was interesting about that in terms of my work is that I performed at Parramatta Jail with a band that led to me being interested in Social work, I guess, is what it led to. So I did social work as a result of thinking, well, this is interesting and this is different. And one of my first jobs 
full-time jobs was as a probation and parole officer. So that all led from me being a heavy metal rock drummer. So there you go. Wow. So I know my son's very interested in heavy metal. He went to Knotfest the other weekend and I think came home with quite a hoarse voice and saw all over. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it will do that. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know any young people were into heavy rock these days. So there you go. Well, it's probably more death metal, I think, is that, oh, uh, right. you know, where they, they sing and then there's bits that you wouldn't really call singing. Yes, yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, that's good to know <laughs> that uh, rock lives on. It does. It does. So, Max, you've had many years of experience in the public participation space. How would you explain to someone who has no idea what it is that you do? Yeah, well, that uh, that comes up quite a bit, and it is tricky. Often I'll kind of come back and say, well, tell me where you live, and I'll find out, okay, well, you probably had a major road up work or there was, you've had some development happen or something controversial, and it's like, well, I'm the person that helps people try and work through that. So I guess that's what, what I do. I work with organisations and communities to try and navigate challenging situations, you know, complex situations. And so my role varies quite a bit, but I'd say the common thread is that I help to design those processes and then I help people work together to work through them to come out with an implementable solution. And I'm sure you probably find your clients first come to you and think, oh, it's pretty black and white, we just want to build a road here or we we just want to change the way we do this with the community and not quite realising necessarily all the complexities that might be involved or the many different perspectives that they're going to be faced with. Yes, well, that happened. But I think we also, probably more so, what I find is that clients will come to me because they've taken that approach and it's blown up in their faces Mm -hmm. and they've realised that things are difficult. There's now a burning platform and they need to kind of regroup and, and think through a different way of recovering from that and then working more productively. But yes, it it's great when you know I'm approached early enough that we can design a process that's not likely to lead to that kind of outcome. It's always nice when you can actually design a good process from the beginning rather than trying to recover one. Oh, it's, it's much, much better, that's <laughs> for sure. And I'm really thankful that I think that that happened more often now than what it did. I think in the early days it was, been sort of at this now for nearly 30 years, I guess. And I think that, yes, it was more let's try and just push through with this project, we've got our budget, we've got our timeline, let's just get on with it. And, oh, yeah, you can look after the community engagement side of things. Mm. And now it's, I find that engagement is much more a conversation that happens earlier Mm -hmm. because people realise that projects often don't go ahead because of community outrage or social and political issues, not the technical issues. And so I think there's a realisation that there needs to be more investment and care and thought to go, you know, to go into it. Yes, yeah, and it's no different to when you're trying to lead change within an organisation. You know that you've really got to bring people with you, that you can't just force it. Totally, and I think that that's one of the things that I've been interested in is all the lessons learned through community engagement projects and how they apply just as much internally Mm -hmm. as to how to actually work through some challenging issues or any sort of transformation and how do you actually get people working with you as opposed to working against you or undermining or just choosing not to participate at all. 
Yes, yes. And I know we first met many, many years ago when you were involved in the development of the Queensland plan for people who might remember that. So I know you and John Dungate's work has certainly been quite influential in my thinking over the years working within health. But in your TED talk, you mentioned that when faced with a complex situation, people often tend to think or see the community as a problem to be solved rather than an asset to be utilized. And I know in a number of our conversations, you know, you often talk about the value of activating people. Can you share with our audience why activating people in the community can be such a valuable strategy in complex situations? Yeah, that's a big question and and a few different elements of it, I think. What I found is that if, just getting back to this mindset as to whether the community is a problem to be solved or an asset that we can utilise, it actually just changes the approach totally that is taken. People plan uh, when they, th- and they think, okay, we have to manage a problem group or an issue that people, they think they don't understand and we need to kind of educate them or we need to somehow manage them or somehow control people who have inconvenient points of view. Mm. With the strategy or the planning process is one that people are almost planning for battle. And of course, that is not all that conducive to starting to build good relationships with people. And so it's really interesting. It's not to say that there aren't challenges or or difficulties at times. Of course, there is. But what I find really powerful is saying, okay, let's just imagine that the community has something useful to offer here. And how do we actually approach this in a way where we can value their input and their differences and their passion and seek to understand that? and see where that goes. And let's just imagine that their input is going to be useful. And I I use those terms because I believe it will be useful. But for some people, they've never had that experience before that it's, it's constructive to work with people who might be upset about something or who might be passionate. And so this is kind of, I just want people to play with that. What I find is that in terms of activating people though in conversations, it's very hard to jump to transactions straight away. Mm. You can't just sort of hit people cold and just say, okay, we've got a difficult situation here. We've got a few options. What do you think we should do? And this goes for any sector, whether it's infrastructure or urban planning or health service planning, you know, environmental issues. It's the same thing. If you, if you don't have a relationship with people, you can't really work with them. Mm. And you might use terms like we're here to engage or to collaborate. But in fact, if you don't have a level of trust or, or a relationship, you can't actually work with people. So I think the value of activating people is the conversation is about connecting as people and understanding what matters to people and respecting that. And that helps to build relationships. And if you can build relationships, you then have the opportunity where you can do transactions. So what I've found is that, you know, building relationships is absolutely critical. And you only build those relationships when people know that you actually really care about what they care about. Mm. And so it's that old thing about people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And I think that's kind of a fundamental thing for working with people with Mm. challenging or complex situations. Yeah. And Max, it makes me think of the work that Amy Cuddy did many years ago. So Amy's very well known for the work she did on power posing, but I think she's done some far more influential work really around the whole idea of you can't lead anyone until you first connect with them. Yeah. 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 So true. Yeah. So, Max, 
from your perspective, how valuable is co-design when it comes to activating people in the community? Yeah, well, I guess this is a progression of, of work I've been doing for, for many years that with some colleagues a few years back we were saying, well, what makes for a good process? We actually used appreciative inquiry as a way to look at when things work well, what happens, how does that happen? And we worked our way back from there's a solution that's implemented, there's a legacy where there's more trust and more capability to continue working together. Mm-hmm. And what, what actually creates that? Well, if people have been part of crafting a solution, they feel proud about they feel good about it, they're more likely to do that. And then we asked, well, what is it that actually helps people to work together on a solution? And you go backwards and we found that what really seemed to make a difference if people were really happy about what was on the table, that there was agreement about what the remit was and and what the puzzle we're trying to solve. And the other thing that made a difference is if people had a role in helping to design the process, they were much more inclined to participate in that process. So Mm -hmm. I think the thing that I've learned about co-design is it's, uh, what's essential is co-designing the process is necessary for building trust and for having a process that people are willing to participate in. And that's, I think, the power of co-design, which is kind of different from a view that the experts design an expert process and we invite people to play in that space. Mm-hmm. And that tends to make people very suspicious. If there's not a relationship, if there's not trust, then you often need to spend a lot of time doing things other than looking at co-designing solutions. You, people need to get to know each other, what matters to them. They need to know that they're respected, that there's a process that's going to be worth investing. So I find that uh, co-design has been incredibly practical for, and sometimes, you know, it, it sounds might sound sort of a bit mysterious as to what that involves, but sometimes it might be as simple as, where should we hold a meeting in this community? What are the times that work for people? You know, what local caterers can we use? <laughs> uh, what role would you like to play as a community leader here, mm-hmm. you know, in this process? And how do we reach people? What's the best way of connecting with people here? So you're actually, people are actually helping you to design the process just by building a relationship and at the same time getting some components or advice as to how to make this work. And what that means is that when people arrive, they already feel like they're respected. They've already helped to shape the process. They already feel like they've got some agency. So when it comes to doing the work of tackling a challenge, they've already got a bit of confidence that this could be worth it and that their input will be valued. So, Max, I think that's so important because I know having worked public service for a very, very long time, often you know, we would label things co-design, but they probably really weren't co-design. They were deep consultation and probably you're trying to have much more meaningful engagement and consultation, but there were so many decisions that are made beforehand around the types of issues that you've just described there where people are being invited into the space rather than helping to design the space and the process. And that's it. And I think sometimes the reluctance to do that is people think, well, or organisations might think, well, if we're going to involve people in designing the process and shaping the question that we're trying to answer, does this mean that we're, we're losing total control of our, our objective here or what's driving this? And it's really important, actually, to be really clear about some. what are the parameters for this. There's always parameters with co-design. And some things might be rock-solid, non-negotiable, and they need to be explained. But there might also be some things that, you're pretty confident about you want to test and then there are things that 
are completely open for people to shape. And I think the important thing about doing co-design is there needs to be something substantial on the table. That if people don't believe it's there's enough on the table to be shaped, then why should they invest in themselves in a process? What will make this worthwhile to be part of? So that's that's really important. And how much do you think fear of failure for the people who are commissioning the process or you know, need the outcome from the process plays into this reluctance to maybe engage right up at that very front end about designing the process? Yeah, good question. I think there's, you know, there's a lot at stake for people. And as a consultant in this area, I think it's really important to understand that nervousness and where it's coming from. And it can come from different places. It might be just a sense of this is really new. I don't know how this is going to work. Therefore, I feel anxious about it. Or it could be that their job's on the line, <laughs> that if they feel like they're pushing to do something a bit different and they might have a person they're reporting to that says, well, we better not stuff this up. <laughs> you know, we, we don't want this to happen. So they might have that kind of pressure as well. I think also there's this fear of being willing to be vulnerable enough to spend time with people to understand what their passion is. And sometimes there might be a lot of fear, outrage, concern, anger in the community. And that fear might be, I don't want to expose myself to that. It feels much more comfortable in our meeting room talking with my colleagues about this than it is going out there and and having those conversations. So I think the fear can come from a different range of places. The fear of failure is is certainly there and, and I totally get it. I think that in responding to that, what I'm inclined to do is to ask them what's likely to happen if we played it really, really safe and you tried to control this process and push it through. I think that's probably something that I would be frightened about. Mm. And usually organisations have had many experiences where they've tried that approach and it has blown up badly. Projects have been overrun budget-wise, time-wise, reputation is damaged. It's really unpleasant. <laughs> and I think, well, what I'm I think the advice in looking at a co-design process for a complex project is you want to avoid that dynamic or at least make it a lot more manageable. So, mm-hmm. yeah, fear. It's a good, interesting topic. Yeah, So, and just that whole idea of control as well mm. because people are often so focused, as you say, they've got so much invested in achieving an outcome. Yep. So what are some of the things that you found have worked well to help people feel safer to try letting go of some control? Yeah, so I'll probably, you know, asking people to ponder previous processes and how they've approached it and what whether that outcome was useful mm. and whether that worked for them. And so the idea of, I guess, being willing to try something different because you know doing, you know, the same thing will probably give you a similar result and will be just as unpleasant. The other thing is I think it, it helps to have to work with someone who's done it before and is not going to be two-phased, can keep their composure. And I think that's one of the things I find really useful is trying not to add to the anxiety of clients and trying to take pressure off them and being kind of okay with there being a bit of outrage or emotion or strong points of view or criticism and just allowing that to kind of be expressed and shared and just to be okay with that. Mm. Another thing I found really helpful is it's interesting what people regard as being a successful 
meeting or a process and a number of times that a project team will regroup and they'll ask things like, well, how did that meeting go? Did we get through our agenda? Did we get through it on time? Did we manage to get through it unscathed without anyone getting very upset at us? Uh, and they ask these questions as if they're really important success measures. And so one of the things I've found helpful is saying, let's think about what a successful meeting actually looks like. You're setting yourself up for failure if you're thinking a good meeting is a nice, clean, straightforward one. Yeah. If you're talking about a situation where there's outrage and a great deal of distress and hurt and pain. So I would include things in your project team meetings, such as what did you learn about what matters to people? What new insights did you get? Do you believe that people felt listened to and heard? And how do you know? Do you think it would be easier next time to have a conversation with this group or more difficult? And so asking questions like that is sort of prompting people to think, well, we need to think about success differently. You know, you can't really move anywhere unless people feel like their input is understood mm -hmm. and valued, appreciated. Their, their willingness to share that is appreciated, that you understood that accurately, that it looks like you're demonstrating or you are demonstrating empathy. And they're different sort of conversations. And so if that's the case, it doesn't matter if someone got upset. That doesn't mean it's a failure of a meeting. Mm. What we ask is, what do we learn from that about what matters to people? And did that person, do we believe that they felt heard and, you know, respected in the process? Mm. And it means that people are actually focusing on different things in the meeting and they're talking about different things. They're talking about things that will make a difference as far as working with groups of people. And how important do you find listening without judgment is for your clients when they're in those situations engaging with the community? Yeah, that's, it's, I mean, obviously it's really important. I think there's, um, there's in, there is an inclination to judge and I guess people can come in with an attitude that these people are difficult, they're biased, they're ill-informed, they've got other agendas. It's really hard to come in and with an open mind, willing to listen actively, if that's the mindset. So there's a lot of work to be done before even getting to the meeting for that to work. And I think that there's also, it's, what people find, and I have sympathy with this, is they feel like their expertise is not being valued by the community. Mm -hmm. And they believe that all their work, all their study, all their years of experience has counted for little. And these people who don't know nearly as much are attacking me for other reasons and they just shut down. So, and I understand that. I think it's a, it takes quite a bit of practice and, and coaching. And one of the things that I try and prompt people to think about is if you demonstrate that you're interested in what people know, then they'll become curious about what you know. Mm -hmm. If you're able to build some trust and they feel like that you, you, know, you care about their perceptions, their fears, their values, their aspirations, whatever it is, then you've actually earned the right to share about what you know mm. and they're more likely to listen and take advantage of your expertise. And when they have an experience where that happens, I think, oh, okay, I get it now. <laughs> I have to be less concerned about being right and making sure I get my point across early in the process. I need to actually settle into this and see it's part of the process that I need to listen and ensure that you know, not just what you say, and I think this is really important too, that 
sometimes people are completely unaware of their body language and the messages they're actually giving. Mm-hmm. So if there's incongruence between what they're saying, so I've learned to say, oh, yes, I understand. Oh, that must be really hard. If their body language is saying, I actually don't care very much about how you're being affected, mm-hmm. what I'm more concerned is how I'm going to outpoint you in a debate in a moment about this matter. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that the body language is incredibly important to be aware of and to practice. And it's not easy for people who are maybe used to having sort of debates in professional circles mm-hmm. around things to realise, well, if you're working with a number of people who have very strong views about it, and by the way, they might actually be quite well educated, so don't pretend that or don't imagine that they don't haven't done some study themselves about these things. But, you know, it, it's really important, I think, to get into that space of we need to actually be genuinely curious about what matters to people, mm-hmm. why they think what they do, and demonstrate, you know, take notes, nod your head. There's some things you can do that actually says, I'm paying attention to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. If you don't do that, then chances are they're not going to be very interested in your expertise. Yes. And there's so many things that are just popping up into my head as you're talking about this, that often people are told, oh, we need to engage with the community because you know, there's an expectation before we put this up for a decision that we can say what the community thinks about it. But it's not about just facilitating that one conversation. It's really starting back no. from what is it that we're trying to achieve here and then how could we actually start to engage in an informal way with key members within the community to understand how we might actually go about designing a process. There's the whole need to actually check in on your own assumptions and Mm, really just challenge whether you need to do some pre-work yourself and having someone who can help you do that before you actually stand up in front of a room of people. And then one of the things I talk to a lot of my clients about when we're creating containers to have conversations is, you know, I know for years and years you talk in a business context, oh, yes, we had a discussion about this and we had a discussion about that. But when you actually look at what is the meaning of the word discussion, Mm. you realize it's actually about it's a two-way process to try and convince someone else of why your view of the world is right. Yeah. Whereas what we actually really want is a dialogue. And dialogue doesn't really run off the tongue quite so nicely. Oh, yes, we had a dialogue about that the other day. It sounds a bit pretentious. (laughs) So I tend to focus much more on how do you have a quality conversation But it's actually having a dialogue, which is about trying to listen without judgment and then genuinely seek to build on the ideas and feelings of other people. So it does become much more of an exchange that is generative and goes somewhere. So I would imagine that type of a process is absolutely essential in a community context. But then what I also heard you talking about is how essential it is to do that reflection, Mm. not just after the process, but all the way through. Absolutely. You want want it to be a process where everybody's learning something and getting Mm. smarter along the way. And that goes for project team, subject matter experts, community members, stakeholders. I think that that's really important. And I think that's interesting you brought up that word discussion, considering that we started with me talking about being a heavy metal rock drummer. The word discussion has very similar roots to the word percussion. Mm. It's about noise. And I think that, yeah, so there's quite a different process, I guess, when, you know, debate, discussion, dialogue, 
They're actually quite different ways of having a conversation. And it's sad that most of the models of communication that we see in the public realm are really more mm-hmm. discussion and debate. In the seat of parliament, you know, TV station to put a person with this point of view versus that point of view. And we, you know, and, and even at schools when kids are encouraged to improve their communication skills by joining the debating team. Imagine mm. if we had dialogue teams. It would be kind of sounds weird, but it's not necessarily a natural thing or something that people see role models mm. in demonstrating what dialogue actually is and how that's a very different type of conversation and one that's not valued nearly as much as what it should be. Be interesting to see what happens because we're seeing a lot more ideas incubators and those sorts of things. How to see what happens to people who've been through those different processes. You know, someone who's been on the debate team versus someone who's much more used to operating as a member of a team within an adult, within an ideas incubator. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It, it's quite fascinating. So keep an eye <laughs> on that, Suzanne, and let us so, know. Look, Max, are there other things that are essential to keep in mind when facilitating these types of processes? Anything we haven't talked about yet? Oh, probably heaps, but I can't think of them right now. That's <laughs> all right. <laughs> so I know you mentioned the importance of having a curious mindset and how helpful that is when dealing with people in these types of complex situations. However, I know I've heard you also talk about we need to be cautious about the questions that we ask. So it's wonderful to be curious, but sometimes we need to think about how the question is framed. Can you talk more about why you think that's so important? Yeah, uh, for sure. You know, I think one of the things that really caught my attention early in my days doing community engagement is how the questions being asked of communities to respond to were not helpful. In fact, they would further polarise. And a classic example was the National Parks Authority that said they wanted to go out to the community with the question, what are national parks for, recreation or conservation? And that's a classic question that would actually just polarise people in camps. Mm. And so we said, don't go out to the community saying that. I mean, what, what do you want? It's sort of inviting people just to have a, a fight. And so we sort of come up with a better question, or, or they did, which was you know, how do we balance the needs of recreation versus conservation? And then we thought, well, maybe we can do even better is it necessarily a zero-sum game that the more you have of one, the less you have of the other? So it's, you know, it's, it's a trade-off. What if we, maybe we can do better with that? And we ended up with the question of, you know, how can we both improve conservation of national parks and our enjoyment of them? How can we do both of those things? And that's a question that kind of calls out to the best in people to be creative and to understand there are different interests and passions that people have, and they're both important. But it's not one versus the other. You can actually look at them together. And, of course, if you think about, you know, some of the work done in national parks with boardwalks, they actually can improve access to enjoying the national park. And it has makes uh, it's less of an environmental footprint mm. because people aren't walking on the ground. So I think you want to ask a question that invites people to be creative and that sort of embeds some of the tensions itself in the question. And I think the thing about questions is, you know, a lot, of, a lot of questions in community engagement are a fairly base level, which is come and have your say. And there's some value in knowing what people think off the top of their heads, come and have your say about this. And for some projects, maybe that's fine. It's fairly straightforward. But if, it, if there's a lot of complex elements, 
people just coming to have their say is not asking much of people. And they just say what they say, it's recorded and it goes somewhere and someone does something with that information. In a deeper engagement process, a deliberative process or co-design, we're asking much more of people. We're saying, this is kind of the puzzle we're trying to solve here and has these elements. And we need you, we need your help to get creative in how we can resolve it. And we're asking you not just what you think, but we're asking you to jump into appreciating the complexity, working with others, appreciating other perspectives, and looking for a way forward that is creative that can actually address a number of objectives. Mm. And I think, you know, it's it's amazing how the question itself will make an amazing difference as to what we expect of people and how people respond. Mm. Not a lot of thought goes into what makes for a good question. Yeah, but often if we're thinking about bleeding through complexity generally, how you frame things just makes such an enormous difference because you're either closing things off or you're keeping people's minds open to different possibilities. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's such a wonderful example of how, yes, that is quite a valid question, the first version of it, but really thinking about how are people going to respond, you know, how are people going to see that question and what type of response is it going to elicit is such an important thing to think about. It's really worthwhile to build in some time to test questions and to test even key messages. And they might make sense for a project team, but it's good sort of running these things by friends or family members who don't work in this area, just to say, what does this mean? Does this make sense? How would you react to this? (laughs) I think, you know, that sort of testing and refining is really important. And I often find it will take three meetings before we actually feel like we're coming up with a good question. Mm Mm-hmm. To, uh, like one that's going to work well. And so it's yeah. definitely worth putting some effort into it. The lens through which we interpret things is based on what we already know and have experienced ourselves. And everyone's got a very unique set of experiences. So I agree with you. It's absolutely essential to test that with different people because they'll interpret it in completely different ways. For sure. So I know you're a fan of David Cooper Ryder and Appreciative Inquiry. How have you used appreciative inquiry to good effect when exploring complex problems? Yeah, good question. One of the things I do is I, I tend not to say I'm using appreciative inquiry yep. because it freaks people out and there's all sorts of different experiences or connotations and people can sort of see this is just Pollyannaish, just just think about the positive and not the negative and so much richer than that. So a number of things I've learned, it actually has helped me in what we were just talking about, how to frame questions that bring the best out in people and invite more of them to step into this place of not just having a say but actually becoming a problem solver or a solutions generator. One of the things I found really helpful with appreciative inquiry, and they use this often early in the process, is a thing called paired interviews. And you get improbable pairs talking to each other. So people have different ideas, different perspectives. And to share a story... And to share a story about something which is relevant to the topic, generally what we're inviting people to think about is, tell me about the best time that, or a really successful time when you did blah, whatever it is. Or let's get get an example of, you know, let's, let's just say, let's just make it a bit more specific and tangible. If in fact trust is really low, 
between the community and an organisation. We might have community members and organisational people paired up. And we ask the question, tell us about a story where you began to form trust in someone that you didn't think was trustworthy. Or can you describe an example where you're in a trusting relationship and what actually led to that? What can we learn from that? So you're doing a number of things. One is you're helping people to tell stories that often mean that some barriers are broken down about assumptions people have about each other and they learn a lot about each other's story. But at the same time, you're identifying some ingredients of stuff that has worked in the past and has been influential and useful. And that's the stuff you want to pay more attention to. And so imagine you have 20 conversations like that and then you have the conversation together about given all the the gems that you've learnt and some of the lessons learned from your collective stories, knowing that they have worked in the past, how can we build on that in the future? And the power of that is we're not asking them to do something completely new and something totally unfamiliar. We're actually building on their own lived experience mm. and we're able to say, what can we learn from that? Yeah. And I've found that to be powerful in so many different contexts. And that's just a particular technique that the, you use very early in the discovery phase of appreciative inquiry to try and let's discover or explore what does it look like when things are working well and mm-hmm. at their best and what can we learn from that? And I think that there's something about the focus, if we're just focusing on problems and issues, and there's this saying in appreciative inquiry that what you focus on will grow, mm. will get bigger. So what do you want to pay attention to? And I think we want to pay attention to the fact that we have experience that's useful to tackling something. We want to focus on what's been working and to be curious about how can we apply it in this context? How can we get more of that? Even if it was kind of the, the exception in their experience to say, well, what would this look like if this was business as usual? What would be going on? How would that look? You can just see how that just gives a different direction and an energy to the conversation. So that's just one of the things that I've got out of appreciative inquiry, but there's much, much more. Yes, yes. And I like that whole idea of what would it look like if it's working well? And I think what you were describing really goes back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of treating the people that you're engaging with as an asset. Yep that can actually be leveraged for the benefit of everyone. Mm. Yeah. Totally. So, Max, we've seen an increase in the use of digital tools, and that's provided some new opportunities for engaging with diverse groups and also helping to create or re- make it easier for people to take an interpersonal risk and say what might really be on their minds. Have you found them to be beneficial tools like Menti and Miro when you've been doing engagements? Yeah, very much so. I think that, you know, in years gone by, we had these different inefficient methods, but useful for get, making it safe for people to have a say. So we get people to write down something in a large group and they give it to someone, they give it to someone else, they give it to someone else <laughs> and they would read something and you wouldn't know who came up with it but they said it and so it was it was kind of it's interesting but uh, I don't know if you ever saw a process like that but it's, it was kind of a, a one way of trying to make it safe for people to be able to communicate something without being judged or without it hurt, harming their career or, mm-hmm. or anything so I found that the anonymity of using something like Menti is fantastic and that sometimes there might be a dominant narrative happening and you find you test a point of view or a direction or an issue. And when you test it with everybody using a tool like Menti, 
that you realize, well, there's a few people that feel that way, but most people actually feel something quite different. But that wasn't coming through in the early stages of the narrative. And that's interesting and powerful. It's quite empowering for those people who don't believe that it's either too risky or they don't feel like they're clever enough perhaps to get up and win people over in the conversation, but they can, they have an equal opportunity to provide feedback on issues by using a tool like Menti. So whether we're doing it online or doing it face-to-face, we often use Menti in face-to-face sessions as well. And, you know, people sort of scan the barcode and they answer the questions and, oh, the results come up straight away. I think that's the other wonderful thing about it is that people can see the outcome immediately. We don't have to go away and document it and send it back and say, do we get it right? And as far as a trust-building exercise, what you see on the screen and what's in the system is what people have actually indicated, what they've actually said. Yes. Hasn't been sanitised, hasn't been interpreted, hasn't been, you know, hasn't gone into a black hole and someone at some point decided what actually happened. It's all there. And I think that's the power of it. And the same with Miro and Mural and those other tools that they actually do provide an interesting creative space for people to work in. And it's all very explicit. It's there. So I think it's... uh, they're great tools to use. I I love people using them. What I think it does, it actually empowers people who feel disadvantaged by the classic sort of meeting and the dynamic, mm. that they can be creative, they can draw something, they can, you know, they can comment on other people's comments and can do it quite anonymously. So you can actually generate a lot of content very quickly mm. and in a safe way and it and the good thing is you don't have to sort of write it all up later. It's all there. So I yeah. really love sort of doing reports where it might look a bit messy, but you're doing screenshots of Miro. Yes, <laughs> or, yes. You know, uh, and of your mentee polls, and you know, and there it all is. And I think it actually means a lot to people when they can see that straight away. And if you can send the next day, here's, here's a report of the process. This is all our polls. This is what you did on, Yeah. you know, here it all is. This is your work. Yes. And, you know, there it is, I think. That's you know, some of the power of it. And I think it's great that we've we've skilled up in these areas and COVID forced us to really use yeah. these tools a lot more. And I'm, I'm glad yeah. about that bit, not about the rest of it. But I love how something like Menti enables you to get some hard data from people by using, you know, forcing choices, but it also gives you the ability to add richness and context to it by capturing freeform stories. Yes. And I think it just gives that information that you're looking at so much more meaning. If you're trying to make sense yeah. of something and work out how to respond, it gives you a lot more insights. Absolutely. So when, you, yeah, I'm sure you're doing this as well by the sound of it, that people being able to respond to a poll and then having a, a free form screen or next question and to say, look, tell us the reasons why you, mm. why you sort of recorded that response. What was behind your rating of yes. whatever it was? And being able to capture that just does give a lot of richness. Yeah. And we're not just asking people just to say what you think in terms of a, a score of, of something, but, but the yeah. reasons behind it. So that's really rich. I love the fact that you can hide the results for a yes. while. Yeah. So we attack all the groupthink dynamic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you're actually making people make a choice and you're waiting until you see so many of the, the group already have responded before you start to share the results. I think having those sorts of tools just makes such a a difference. And I love it because I remember all the horror stories, you know, when people 
write things on post-it notes or on survey forms and then someone goes around and is trying to match handwriting and, you know, there's all of those stories that tend to go around in workplaces and the old legends that that sort of existed that might have prevented people from really saying what was said. So that anonymity where it's just typed words, it makes people feel a lot safer. Sure. Yeah. So, Max, I'm really curious, in your own words, what does thriving and complexity mean to you? Yeah, oh, it means means lots of things. I think when I sort of uh, observe something, a, a dynamic where I think we're, we're thriving in this, it's people are excited, they feel like they have some agency, they can see an enduring benefit, mm-hmm. and it means that people are going to be feeling more capable and confident about tackling the next challenge or the next stage of this process. So that sense of optimism that builds that we, we can actually do it, it's hard, but we can do it. I think another thing about thriving in complexity for me is people just getting smarter and looking at something in a completely different way and to realise that the way they're looking at it isn't the only way mm. <laughs> that this thing can be looked at. And so when people have these BFOs, a blinding flash of the obvious, they look at something that someone else has shared a story or a perspective and it's so different to what they thought and they can't look at the thing the same anymore. Mm. And I think that's one of the transformational things so that, that happens that when people are learning, I find that it's interesting and it's dynamic and it's also at the same time empowering for groups. So all those things for me speak to a thriving way of working in, in response to complexity. Yeah. And Max, have you ever been faced with a complex situation that afterwards you wish you had handled it differently? And if so, what would you do differently next time? Yeah, oh, absolutely. It was it was difficult to choose one. One, I remember there was not that long ago, there was a fairly complex piece of work to be done with a community that had very low trust in the organisation. And we had a fairly tight budget and tight time frame, and we just rushed the first stage of trying to get into the business and not allowing people to talk about their fairly dim view of the organisation. It was actually a local council. And to share those stories and to connect, we kind of, we, we did it a bit, but not nearly as much. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably what I would have done differently, knowing a bit about the history, is push the organisation to say, we need the first meeting just for people to actually get to know each other and to convey the messages that they've probably been rehearsing for several nights as they put their head on the pillow. <laughs> this is the thing that I need to convey and this is what I want to say. And I know that that's really important to do, but we tried to work, I think, with a fairly unrealistic time frame. And what I would have done differently, I think, is back my judgment to say, no, we can't really get into the business of this too quickly. We need to allow time for this to happen. If we don't, it's going to make the process go longer. Yes. And that's exactly what happened. We had to go back. We had to undo some stuff. We had to schedule some additional meetings. So because I didn't actually push harder, I don't know what would have happened if I did push harder at the beginning, but what happened is what always happens. We had to redo it. We had to schedule more meetings. We had to revisit what happened. We had to rebuild confidence in the process. And, you know, and the whole thing probably took, had we started off <laughs> in a way that I would normally think this would be a good way to do it, it would have gone a lot 
lasted much less. It would have been a shorter duration for the overall process, mm. but doing what we did in trying to honour a time frame that wasn't realistic, I think we paid for it. Mm. Yeah. So I think there's been a bit of a theme through our conversation around the quality of that early engagement really can help to set up, set you up for a more successful engagement that actually gets you somewhere. Might not be exactly where you thought you were going to be when you start, but it would be in a much better place than if you just go in, go hard, you know, have all of these assumptions, not really focusing on the quality of the engagement and just focused on the outcome that you're trying to get. That if you really focus on how do we create a good quality engagement, good quality conversation, how do we support everyone to understand what's happening and then invite them to participate in a really safe way to share their thoughts and encourage them and create opportunities to build on the ideas and feelings of each other, you're probably going to end up in a better place. Oh, you said that so well, Suzanne. Oh, thank you. You nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) So, Max, looking back, if you could give advice to your 25-year-old self, what advice would you give to you? You know, I think it's part of it, it's inevitable when you're young that you're very keen to impress and prove yourself because most people won't think you've had enough experience yet. So it's really hard to know... It's really hard to get my 25-year-old self to pay attention to this advice. But one is don't take yourself too seriously, that everything that happens in a process can be useful if we kind of stay in the moment and we're creative enough. And I, I do remember a bit of advice I had years ago in a facilitation conference that was really helpful, which was don't facilitate what you think should be going on, facilitate what is actually going on. Yeah. And being in the moment, I think, was a really important lesson. And it means that you can be much more flexible and less rigid in thinking, well, if something happens and it breaks the plan, then everything's going to fall down and collapse. No, just about staying present and being open to doing things a bit differently as you go. Uh, The only other bit of advice, I think I was was way too serious a young man, so I'd say keeping a sense of humour is (laughs) is really, really important. And I think I'm a lot better at doing that these days than when I was a 25-year-old. I think that's such good advice because I'm someone who has a tendency to get very serious and focused at times. So I think it's great advice. And I've been doing a lot of um, focusing a lot on the whole idea of ambiguity Mm. in more recent times. And some of the research around that is just absolutely interesting and it goes to your first piece of advice that you give yourself which is being in the present so when you're faced with ambiguity and you don't know how it's going to work out what the evidence is suggesting is the best skill that you can focus on across all of the different elements of responding or being able to tolerate ambiguity is actually being mindful Mm. yeah yeah great advice and and I, i remember years ago doing just one session on the martial art of Aikido and that was also incredibly useful around that that you know if the situation is somewhat chaotic or turbulent or unpredictable or uncomfortable that just keeping your own composure 
means that other things have to change in the system to kind of get to a point where there's more of this homeostasis. Yes. <laughs> and it's kind of really interesting that mindfulness and, you know, and, and they said sometimes the only thing you can control is your breathing. So just control your breathing and focus on that and be okay with that. And it's amazing. It's really hard to do that when you're young though, isn't it? But it I, is. It I is. think there's something about being okay in the moment that actually it can convey a really different message to the whole group of people working on something that, well, we think it's going crazy, but well, he looks okay with what's going on. So maybe, maybe this is what's meant to happen. And we just have to do it <laughs> rather than I'm here having to try and solve everything and make everything nice and neat and comfortable for everyone. So it's yeah. kind of, it is interesting. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, in terms of what we both do, I mean, I know what it's like for me, but I do a lot of preparation before I do an engagement. And I think about what might be the best way to create a space. And you're always playing, particularly in the space I work in, you're always under time pressure. Mm. And you're trying to think about how to do things. And I don't think there is one single engagement I have done over the last three years (laughs) that I have let it run exactly to plan because you have to be in the moment and you have to respond to what's going on mm. in the room and you've got to adapt and but you end up with a better outcome because you yeah. do that yeah it's what i found challenging about that is that i can be okay about it and the group might be but i might have a very anxious client thinking hang on <laughs> we talked about that this should be happening and now you're doing something different and so having some sort of agreement that we may feel the need to do something different if this is happening and yes. give it a go and I won't do it as some sort of superficial reason. Just, you know, I'll be, there'll be a reason for it, but it's, it's not easy if people don't know you. They might just think, well, something's going wrong. Yes. And therefore they think the event is more like a choreographed performance that must happen the same way and in a particular way. And yeah. it's not like that. It's more, no. it's more like jazz musicians. Uh, bouncing off each other and making it up as they go rather than a, than a, an orchestra playing a, a symphony. Yeah. It's a different kind of metaphor, I think, when we sort of work in spaces where there is, as you say, ambiguity, complexity, yes. passion. Uncertainty. It's, a, it's a different sort of dance, isn't it? It is. It definitely is. Now, Max, if people would like to connect with you online, what's the best way for them to do that? I would say to send me an email to max at maxhardy au is the best way. That email address is on my website, which is we'll, maxhardy.com.au. We'll make sure that's in the show notes for people as well. Sure. Yeah. I'd be thrilled if people wanted to get in touch with me and throw some other questions at me or, or share a dilemma. So yeah, thank you. No, and Max, I know, although we've probably talked about some things in Australia, you have quite an international experience. You're also very... Very, very experienced in IAP too, <laughs> the whole whole approach mm. with the spectrum of public participation. And so I'm sure that we could talk for hours more about a whole range of things to do with public participation, deliberative processes and community engagement. But I so appreciate your time today and I really hope that our listeners have got some new little gems that they can take away and put into practice themselves. Oh, we'll soon find out, I reckon. <laughs> And I'll be really happy to do it again sometime, Suzanne, if this is useful to your listeners. That would be wonderful. Thanks so much, Max, for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. If you had something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. 
If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time. Thank you.